Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1349 entitled Spirited Always. Our podcast title is Blythe Spotted. <laughs> I'm really stretching there for that one. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are on Zero G, and we're going to do a sort of a split screen today, or a split scream, since <laughs> both of the stories are fantasy that we're going to be talking about today. One of them is actually a horror one. Actually, mm-hmm. they both are, really, when you think about it. In a way, yeah. Mm. So we're just going to spend the time doing deep cuts on two items of interest, Fear Street Part 1. Mm-hmm. and Blythe Spirit, which is the Noel Coward play adapted into a new movie. Well, let's start by strolling off the pavement out of that circle of protective street lighting and into the middle of Fear Street, part one. Indeed. We have strayed into the darkness, the supernatural, and the world of the teen slasher film. So as Rob mentioned, this is Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Mm. Now, this is the first film in a trilogy that Netflix presents. So that basically means that it was movies that were produced and Netflix has then come along, seen something they liked and has chosen to present it on their platform. So you can find Fear Street Part 1 on Netflix. And the logline for it is three movies, three weeks, one killer story. (laughs) (laughs) So lot sounds like a pretty fun trilogy. Now, the first movie released on July 2nd and the second movie released on July 9th. Now, we're just going to talk about the first movie here today to get you a little bit interested and see this trilogy is something that you might want to have a look at. Now, it's directed by Lee Janiak. Now, Lee has tried her hand at horror before with the Scream TV series and a thriller called Honeymoon uh, with Rose Leslie in it. Now, this is kind of a big, chunky (laughs) um, something for her to dig her teeth into, actually, because she does all three movies. So this trilogy is directed by the one director, and it is, of course, based on the R.L. Stein books that you might be familiar with. They are a teen horror series. R.L. Stein also, of course, wrote the Goosebumps series, which is another very popular supernatural series more aimed at kids. So this is kind of a paranormal murder kind of energy, and these were filmed a couple of years ago in 2019. But, of course, with uh, COVID and all kinds of other distribution bits and bobs, uh, Netflix ended up with it and has released it this year. Let's dig in a bit more to movie one, part one, 1994. So as you've guessed, it is, yes, set in 1994, which sets us up right away for some great nostalgia, some great music mic drops, which I will say are a little 
uh, haphazard to say the least, but also some great uh, shots of Walkmans and teen fashion and so on and so forth. And we do kick that off straight away with a great slash a cold open uh, with strong scream energy, the Wes Craven film that did indeed kick kind of a renaissance of teen horror in the mid to late 90s. So this film is clearly an homage to a lot of those great horrors, but does a few things of its own differently, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, this is probably one of those films that's firmly referencing what came before or what lies beneath, if you will. So referencing things like Jaws, Poltergeist, The Shining, Scream, as I mentioned before. So very nostalgic and very much meant to give you the energy of that classic teen slasher. Yeah, I felt we were really in uh, Buffy territory, uh, Coal mm. Shack, The Night Stalker, and, you know, supernatural territory, so, as well as the Scooby Good do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that's a great segue for me to say that indeed it is one of the horrors where we've got a little gang of teenagers who has to take matters into their own hands when some things go a bit awry in their small town. And in this case, the small town is Shadyside, Ohio. And this is also where the books were set. Now, this is a small town USA. However, it has a very dark past, a lot of murders, a lot of massacres, and it is adjacent to another town called Sunnyvale. Now, these two towns quite contrast with each other, and it's really brought out in a very clever scene with some very clever lighting, the contrast between these two towns, because shady side where we're set it's a bit of a lower SES uh, situation. We've got a lot of characters here that would maybe be considered to be other. And this is something the director has talked about, really wanting to represent that this story is going to include a lot of people who are maybe excluded from your typical horrors that came out in the 90s. So characters that might be the first to go um, are here at centre stage and getting to be the star of the show. So in Shady Side, we've got poor people getting pipped at the post all the time and murdered and so on. Decades, you know, decades and decades of this. Uh, whereas Sunnyvale enjoys, you know, they're walking around safe and rich and all of that kind of thing. So there's a bit of competition going between these two towns, which uh, we learn very quickly. And what does this remind me of particularly? Mm -hmm. Veronica Mars and the town of Neptune, which has its big sort of split between the rich people and the poor people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I will say I was interested whether it would veer into some very specific social commentary around that, but it, it does seem to have its own thing that it's doing and it just alludes to enough of these ideas that um, you kind of get the point pretty clearly. Uh, but I do wonder if we'll get more of this divide or the background between these towns in the in the future films, the part two and part three. Now, Shady Side, of course, with its dark past, there is a myth and legend of a witch who has cursed the town, which has resulted in its sad history of murder. And this is something that the teens kind of take on the chin and joke about, but you do get a bit of a sense that, yeah, this this legend has permeated the town consciousness for quite a while. They even have their football team named the, the Shady Side Witches. <laughs> exactly. So they've embraced it and tried to take it on a bit, but uh, they are kind of thrown back into the whirlwind of Supernatural because there is a bit of a massacre that happens. And so these students, our ragtag group of misfits, find themselves pursued by a killer 
uh, let's say that, um, and they must kind of figure out what's going on and how to survive the night as they <laughs> blip through a couple of fairly classic slasher settings, which I did appreciate from the movie. I do want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the characters and who the cast is and our thoughts, but maybe let's break it up with a little bit of a track. Now, there are a lot of <laughs> music and 90s tracks that I could have gone with. There is a score by Marco Beltrami, who we have heard on a lot of great genre stuff, and we've talked about him a lot. But the person who grew up in the 90s in me really wanted to play some of these 90 tracks, and we do get a lot of them in this film. I will say they're kind of crammed in there. Someone's clearly gone, these are all the tracks I want to play because we get Portishead, Radiohead, Lauren Hill, the Pixies, all kind of one on top of the other, and they're used a bit too briefly to really hit home or be clever. Um, with the possible exception of the track that I am going to play, which I've chosen a favourite of mine by the Pixies, and this is a track called Hey, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Fear Street Part 1. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. That was Hey by the Pixies. <laughs> One of the numerous great 90s tracks that appear in the film Fear Street Part 1 1994, which we are chatting about on the show today. I will uh, talk a little bit about the cast of characters that we have, and then I really would love to hear what you thought of the film, Rob. So as I mentioned before, we have our Slasher Cold Open, and it does star a familiar face that we've seen and loved on Netflix before. So that is Maya Hawke. Now she plays Heather, and she did appear in Stranger Things Season 3, scooping uh, ice creams next to Steve. And she's, of course, the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. But then I'll move to uh, our gaggle of Scooby-Doers who are running around town trying to fight the witch, and that is Kiana Madeira as Dina. Now, she's kind of probably our central character, you could say. Her and her murder-obsessed serial killer enthusiast, internet nerd, OG internet nerd, Josh, and he is played by Benjamin Flores Jr. So Josh brings a little bit of that solid knowledge. You always need a character that's done a bit of the research and knows a little bit about the law and maybe has some ideas about exactly how they can survive. He's the, the willow of the group in Buffy terms, in, in Buffyology, and mm-hmm. he is so good that he can get stuff out of vending machines by punching in some kind of hacking code. Yeah, I think that's an urban legend, but that was pretty fun. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot of urban legends in this one. (laughs) Uh, We also have Olivia Welch, and she plays a character called Samantha, uh, and she is a very interesting character in this. I won't go too much into some of these character backstories because I think some of the joy is uh, going and watching along in the film. And then we also have... A pair of characters who are just so, I at first I was like, oh, I don't like these guys, but then they won me over a bit. So I've got Julia Raywald as Kate and Fred Heckinger uh, as Simon. So these guys are pals of Dina and uh, also go along to kind of help and help out on this adventure. And I think one thing for me is the film did a great job of flipping my opinion on a couple of things. At first I was annoyed by some bits of the film and I wasn't sure about some of the characters, but, you know, going along for the ride and the twists and turns and, you know, this is all amongst a very solid slasher procedural as well. I realised that the film kind of knew what it was doing with the characters and it gave me enough 
extra backstory that I went, oh, you've done this on purpose, film. Uh, now, all of these names you might have thought by now, they're I mean, what euphemism to use? Relative unknowns, breakout stars, and so on. Apart from Maya Hawke, of course, who, you know, a lot of um, Zero Gears will have seen before. Um, it was kind of nice to watch a film that had a lot of people that I'd not seen before. So I could just kind of enjoy the story and go along for the the trip, as it were. What what did you see? So how did you go into this film and how did you come out of this film, Rob? Absolutely uh, cold in terms of not knowing anything at all about it, uh, <laughs> although because you, when you prepped me for this, you did tell me that R.L. Stein was like the uh, the seed material for this. So I thought, <laughs> oh yeah, it's going to be a, a fairly innocuous sort of teen horror film. <laughs> <laughs> sure, and I, yeah, yeah. And I got to some bits, and, I, and I'm thinking, vegan. <laughs> <laughs> you thought it might be more play by the rules or or something and it I, I, did some wacky stuff. Yeah, I was I was actually more gory than I expected it to be. Sure. <laughs> yes, I will send out a warning. There is some gore and it doesn't hold back uh, yeah, in, that, in that front. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So uh, there's a couple of things. I, I had to, because we've watched so many of these ones set in malls and retro ones from the 80s and stuff, mm-hmm, I wasn't prepared mm-hmm. for the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so, we've moved on. Time has passed. We're in the 90s now. <laughs> and, and I was, ex- you know, expecting at one stage, you know, before you could say Red Riding Trilogy, they'd be off on their bicycles. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it's been old for that. It's the 90s, so they're not teens on bikes. They have to jack cars and stuff, you know. That's, mm-hmm, that's just mm-hmm, the way mm-hmm. of it. Um. One thing, because it's set at night, everything is pretty much depopulated in the town, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. that reminds me very much of uh, 80s films. Yes, yeah, and also a very a bit of a Halloween energy, like a lot of running around between houses at night, that kind of thing. And mm. it is set at Halloween because everyone's got uh, pumpkin candy things out in the mall shops. and Very astute, Rob, very astute. I think you'd have to. Set it at Halloween. Nothing bad ever happens the rest of the time, <laughs> except at Christmas. If you're in a Shane Black movie, it happens at Christmas. Anyway, I I, I was quite shocked by some of the deaths in it. Some of the, as they say in the tra- in the horror movie trade, some of the kills, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which were unexpected. Actually, I thought I didn't think they would go there. I did spot. You know how that old thing about the if you see a gun in a scene early on in a, a film. It's going to be used by the end of the film. Chekhov's gun. Yes, yes Chekhov's gun. <laughs> this, in this case, I, I, I spotted that so early. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? Ah, yes, there it is. But that's all right. You know, they, they lent into the tropes, but they also confused them and mixed them up and changed things. Mm. So I enjoyed that. And, of course, there is some teen romance in the trenches, so just to let you know that's going on there, which is very 90s and 80s slasher films. Uh, Yeah. On that note, I will say, like, one thing, while it has the core DNA of a a tradish slasher, uh, I did like there were some elements that were more updated and there's some elements that did flip some assumptions I had and as a viewer and I went, "Mm, okay, thank you, film. Well done point for you and I did read some uh words from the director and she had said specifically that she'd you know as I mentioned before with Shady Side uh some of the students and the representation there was kind of meant to be um people of color and and other sort of underrepresented groups especially in these kinds of 
pretty white <laughs> um, teen films that we generally see. And deliberately she had thought, oh, you know, like let's get these characters front and centre. A lot of these other slashes lack that representation and here's an opportunity to put it at the forefront and it's a it's an important element of what the trilogy is going to be doing and also be like this is the reason why it's worth a reboot or this is what I'm doing differently with this genre because it has been done so many times before and I do think that was that was an interesting concept and I did like that there was some thought to okay well what can I add what what is a, a way to to take some of the DNA of, of slasher picks that we know and love and all the things we like to see play out on screen, but make it, you know, make it 2021 or, you know, make it this decade for crying out loud. So I will call that out as something that I hadn't expected going in and did appreciate. I thought it had a very fresh, happy death day sort of energy <laughs> yeah. to it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I like that. There were other aspects which I thought, oh, okay, the cops are not going to believe them. Yeah, there was a couple of scenes where I was like, we could have saved this runtime, guys, yeah. and done something else with these minutes. But Except yeah. there are some, they do get playful with that too. There are, mm-hmm. there are hints of some things going on there. So I thought, yeah, I'll pay that. I, I thought this was very much powered by its characters very character driven even if they did have to reach under the dashboard and short out the ignition wires to get there <laughs> so that i appreciated that in this case because i really felt invested in these characters yeah i would agree and and, and that was me coming from a place where when some of them were introduced at first i was like oh when are you going to die like you know i i wasn't that into some of the characters and i i wasn't along for the ride and then and then it does win you yeah. over i do think i do think that that is quite artful yeah, it clicks into place very smoothly when it does happen and, you, and you're actually in a different place. I do mm. like the uh, what what should be the tagline, times change, evil doesn't. <laughs> and I, I think that's the thing, like this is, you know, all the set pieces are there. I don't want to spoil anything, but let's just say there's some, some nice tick boxes that get checked off and it is gory, but it's still pretty fun. Uh, and I agree, it's it's an upbeat gory film. What um, age groups are the Stein books generally aimed at? Yeah, so they're teen books, so they probably would be aimed like 15-ish, something like that. So I will say this is probably older. Yeah. Uh, because there, I wouldn't say, yes, definitely show this to someone who's 15, but, I mean, there's some there's some gnarly deaths. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, so be careful if you uh, want to show it to, to younger teens mm. uh, who might be Stein fans. This is this is actually one for older age kids with super, yeah. supervision, of course. Absolutely. It's not like your Goosebumps where it's a bit goofy and definitely for kids. This is, I mean, it's a horror film. So yeah. um, this is, of course, Fear Street Part 1. So that does mean we've got two other parts in the trilogy. Now, Fear Street Part 2, 1978. So that's also on Netflix. So this is the follow-up. And In this follow-up, we'll be going back to 1978, as the title suggests, and it is set at Camp Nightwing, which is a summer camp. And 70s summer camp vibes, I mean, again, it's another cliche, but if they can can pull it off, very keen to see that. And then uh, so we've done the small town teen horror, we head to the summer camp for Camp Nightwing massacre vibes, and then the third part three, that one is set in 1666 and it's in a colonial town, gripped 
by hysteria. Now, so. now that is one of my favourite settings for mm-hmm. fantasy and horror and other genres in in Americana fiction and media because it doesn't get used all that often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a, a vast time of change and flux and and a country that's still sheathed in primeval forest in many areas. So it's very scary. Yes, perfect <laughs> setting yeah. for some creepy stuff to go down. And and so I personally will definitely watch part two and part three. Like this has got me. What about you, Rob? Well, just thinking about that, that reminds me of other shows that have done this sort of multi-generational different time zone type things. And I'm thinking of Back to the Future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although you want to watch your Back to the Future in this sort of scenario. <laughs> and also that uh, those uh, werewolf movies, which are splendid, uh, the Ginger Snaps. Oh, movies. yeah. So Yeah, they're from the 90s. They were great. I'm up for this. When... Wh- it's once a week, isn't it, dropping? Yes. So now we've got the two are out. So part one's out, part two came out on the 9th, and then part three will be out on the 16th. Mm. Uh, that is, of course, Fear Street Trilogy. You can see that on Netflix. Two out of three are available now. Now to segue over into our next uh, supernatural film that we're going to look at today on Zero G, we do have a track from Fear Street Part 1, but it will lead nicely into Blythe spirit now this is you always hurt the one you love uh originally it was the mills brothers back in 1944 and it was a big hit back then and it's been you know covered by every single human being in the world (laughs) who can sing since even in a parody version by spike jones and Ryan Gosling used it in Blue Valentine, performed it himself too. So <laughs> it's been everywhere. But I thought wow. I'd go with just the original one because, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking about something that's set back in the past and this is really back in the past. Except the only problem was every time I tried to find this track, for some reason my brain, my autocorrect, turned it from you always hurt the one you love to you always kill the one you love since that's the <laughs> element in the film that they're kind of going for. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's dark from you, Rob. <laughs> but let's, uh... Says the person who put me onto a, what I thought was going to be a lightweight kids' horror movie. <laughs> That is true. I feel sorry. (laughs) I misled you a wee bit there, but I'm still glad. I'm really glad you liked it. No, no, I approve. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, Megan's mind has turned. You mustn't take any credit for it. It's entirely due to my influence, of course. (laughs) Hello, me little lovelies. This is your old fat auntie Jack on Radio Free Triple R. You're listening to Zero G, and if you don't listen to it closely, I'm going to jump through your speakers and rip your Bloody arms off! And I will too, won't I, Robert? Jack, we know you'll be back. Though you're ten feet tall, you don't scare us at all. You're big, bold, and tough. <laughs> now, you were always hurt the one you love <laughs> by the Mills Brothers back in the 1940s. Creepy song. Hmm? Creepy lyrics. Creepy lyrics. <laughs> Problematic, strange. And creepily deployed in Fear Street. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Mills Brothers actually were the first African-American artists to have their own show on National Network Radio. 
in the US. They were in films and everything, so a really popular group back in the day. All right, so we are going back in the day as well from Fear Street to a, another supernatural movie. And this one actually is on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And it is called Blythe Spirit. It actually takes its title from Shelley poem to a skylark is the title of the poem. It's, Hail to thee, Blythe Spirit, bird thou never wert. Blythe being, of course, reckless. And there are some very reckless spirits. Oh, yes. Now, Blythe Spirit is a comic fantasy supernatural ghost play. It is, yes. (laughs) By somebody who I used to call Noel Coward. (laughs) Until my Christmas illusions were shattered one day. (laughs) Now, it's a drawing room comedy, essentially, and it is a... I would call a four-character play. Essentially, mm-hmm. there are some other people who flit through, but it's basically there's four characters. It was first seen in the West End in 1941, West End of London, that is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this one just had, it was like the mousetrap. Ah, uh, yes. ran and ran and ran. It's almost, it's like the, an equivalent of um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm-hmm. Okay. In some respects. Whom the director of the new movie actually uh, directed on stage. He did a production of um, Arsenic as well. Okay, so after that, uh, you know, when you get a really popular play mm-hmm. and you're in the 20th century, as it were mm-hmm. back then. The talk of society. The talk of society. It's not a coward, for God's sake, you know. Exactly. You are, you are going to do a movie. Mm-hmm. And so Coward did the screenplay for the film in 1945 where they had Rex Harrison mm-hmm. playing the lead mm-hmm. character. I was just give you the a rundown on the four major characters. There's Charles Condamine, who is a pretty well-off crime writer, mm-hmm. and he's living in a nice sort of mansion. He's doing all right, except for mm-hmm. the fact that seven years ago he lost his first wife in tragic circumstances. Now, his current wife, Ruth Condamine, she's doing all right too. They've reached a fairly comfortable stage in their marriage. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, sitting around in their gym jams and their their robes, eating breakfast and all that sort of stuff. And Charles comes up with a good idea to get some ideas for some characters in his next book. Mm -hmm. Now, this involves inviting a medium Mm -hmm. over for a seance. And boy, this medium is a maximum. <laughs> she is eccentric, mm-hmm. Madame Akati, and she will be the touchstone for the weirdness that does ensue afterwards because she unleashes a supernatural storm upon this household. Mm. There's one other character who is quite important too, Edith the maid. Mm-hmm. And she is more or less important, depending on which adaptation you're seeing. Mm. But, of course, the person who I'm not really sure if she counts as a character because she's dead. Oh, well. (laughs) Undead rights. And she is the former wife, Elvira, not Elvira, Elvira Condamine. 
Okay, so you've got the husband, the two wives, one deceased, <laughs> the medium, and a maid as well. Actually, I've got five Four characters. Years and maid. I've got five characters there. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> uh, again, the maid is um, more or less important depending upon which adaptation you're seeing. And why I'm saying which adaptation? Not because there are any witches in it, but because we did a Rebecca on this. Remember when we talked about the remake of Rebecca? Well, there are mm-hmm. other adaptations of this one. First and foremost, probably that uh, David Lean version. No less Mm -hmm. than David Lean, back in 1945, which had Rex Harrison playing the writer Charles, uh, Constant Cummings playing Ruth, Kay Hammond, Elvira, and Margaret Rutherford as Madame Arcati. Now, Margaret Mm -hmm. Rutherford was an actress who had played everything and went on to play everything. You know, Mm -hmm. you want to miss Marple? You know, all that sort of stuff. Everything she's she played so many roles and she's great in this she's Mm -hmm. full of energy and just hitting all of the eccentric high notes and that's Mm -hmm. in the 1945 film they do a really good job on the makeup of the ghost in that and the special effects in 1945 they were what they were but they were convincing so the whole point of the play in terms of its visual aspect, was being able to have Mm. vases float through the air and books fall off shelves. And, in fact, it's a key point of the play. Did they follow fairly closely the play itself? Like, you know, some adaptations are very much the play on screen or did this one add in bits and pieces, characters, scenes and so on? Well, Coward wrote the screenplay. Oh, so he did what he wanted, really, didn't he? Except David Lean is a very hard person to push back against as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is like it's a whole Lawrence of Arabia thing. So he wanted to open the play up, as you do when you want to film something, yep. unless you're yep. just doing a filmed play. And mm. so they do go outside to, uh, right. you know, um, Madame Akati's home and mm-hmm. driving mm-hmm. around in the countryside. They, yep. He opens it up wherever possible yeah, and yeah. adds one particular scene at the end, which is not in the play. Okay. I won't tell you about that. But, I mean, I loved um, <laughs> Elvira's green makeup in this or and or lighting. <laughs> um, there's a, just a charm to it that you can see must have worked really well on stage. Yeah. Uh, just things like... Um, uh, Elvira wafting in in her ghostly costume, and it's yeah. it's on the actress to sell that. And yeah. one of the good things about the David Lean version is that they really get into the the staginess of the actual interaction between the ghost and the humans when one of the humans can't see the ghost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they will look yeah. somewhere and talk to where they think the ghost is while the ghost is next to them or something, you know. Yeah. And that's the joy the viewer is in on it and so it's extra funny kind of thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's very much the stagecraft of the thing that does shine out in the film version. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's charming and, of course, Rex Harrison is the person that you would want to play Charles. Uh, He's he's upright and quite pompous (laughs) in his own way and you don't quite like the character but this is the point of the play. You are not actually supposed to like any of these people in particular. Mm-hmm. No, there, there is a problem with all of them. But that's okay. So, okay, this would turn into a musical called High Spirits in 1964. 
which has its own ongoing run of adaptations and mm-hmm. performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Woodward played Charles in that at one stage. So, you know, that one has been passed into legend in its own right. But going back mm-hmm. to the play, I screened, I watched the Rex Harrison one mm-hmm. and thoroughly enjoyed it. It is very mannered. Yes, which is sure. which is not the worst thing you can do of a coward play, and of course they kept most of the dialogue in there. The one I watched next was a 1956 live American television adaptation. So this was one of those uh, prestigious theatrical cuts that they right. appeared on TV for the Ford Star Jubilee series. You know, some I see car company or cigarette company or whatever would sponsor a, a whole. Mm-hmm. A whole mm-hmm. series of high culture sort of events. Yes. And here's the cast for that. Charles was played by Noel Coward, <laughs> who directed it. Okay. <laughs> Claudette Colbert played Ruth, mm-hmm. the living wife. And Elvira was played by Lauren Bacall. And I've only seen this because, you know, somebody preserved it on tape at some stage, and it's incredibly dodgy in terms of the visuals and stuff. But it shone. And this is a stage play filmed, so essentially it's um, very, very one room kind of thing, and it was great. You know, it's just Mm. great. So that that was the one that I I went to as the the main sort of textual adaptation, the one from nineteen fifty six on television. But my God, Lauren Bacall just owns that role. She's very wafty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's very mischievous, but she's also quite evil, mm-hmm. as Lauren Bacall could be. <laughs> so that's a great one if you ever get a chance to see that. So, all right, that brings us to the new one. But before we go there, we should have a, a track. Mm-hmm. There's a song in Live Spirit, again, that is crucial to the plot, and it's called mm-hmm. Always. And this interpretation is from Alfie Bow, but this one was tooled up for the Live Spirit original motion picture soundtrack for this new film. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. Yeah, well, we're not going to be playing that always here on Zero G. Alfie Bow <laughs> there from the soundtrack album of Live Spirit the motion picture soundtrack, that is, and that's Always, and it's an Irving Berlin song originally, I seem to recall. <laughs> we are now talking about the new movie, Live Spirit, which mm-hmm. is on Amazon Prime. It is uh, directed by, not Noel Coward, but Edward Hall. So he's a, a theatre director, film director, actually founded a Shakespearean company as well and has been doing a lot of adaptations of plays, but also, you know, like uh, Richard III for NHK Japan. Mm. He's also worked on a lot of television shows too, and things that are actually kind of appropriate to this particular film, like Marple, Sleeping Murder, which is a TV movie in that series. So, okay, this came out in 2020, or more or less, (laughs) as much as Mm -hmm. anything did, and now it's wound up on streaming. Edward Hall... Seems to be a good egg for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. knows what he's doing, but we have problems with this one. But yes. Let's just riff in through the characters first. In this one, Charles Condamine, the writer, and they mm-hmm. really do open up the whole writing part of the role in this. It's really sort of sketched in in the Coward play, deftly mm. sketched in. But what they've done with this to make this a, a full-on longer movie, they've taken like one line out of the play and expanded it into a whole scene. 
To some effect, I do pay what they've done there. I don't know if it always works. In fact, I definitely don't think it always works. Anyway, Charles is played by Dan Stevens, who, of course, mm. is or was the Beast slash Prince in Disney's live-action Beauty and the Beast. He was mm-hmm. Sir Lancelot in Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. He's been Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey. And I've been watching him a lot in Legion because I've been watching those seasons of Legion and he is in that as David. Mm. A very different role, <laughs> but I've had a lot of Dan in my life lately. He's a bit wet in this, I think. Yeah. yeah. Leslie Mann plays Elvira Condamine. And mm. We've seen her before in The Cable Guy back in 96 and Blockers and a few other things. Mm. Isla Fisher stands out. As Ruth Condamine here, mm. Aussie actress and author. Yes, Isla Fisher. She's great in these kinds of roles where she's a little bit of the foil. She's so much fun. I think she's wonderful to watch. I was. I think she did a great job as Ruth in this. She was in Scooby Doo back in two thousand and two. We don't. We don't have to think about that <laughs> one though. It's not a high point. And of course, she was in Gatsby, the Great Gatsby that um, Baz Luhrmann did, mm. and Rise of the Guardians and. There are lots of things, but but the important thing probably is the Gatsby one because this film is set in 1937. So, and it looks Actually, great. is it set in 37? Is that it in the credits at the start? Uh, I might be confusing it with a David Lean one. It's in the Art Deco period. Yes. And yes. boy, do they really go to town with that. If you're a costumer, this is one to watch. Some yep. stunning costumes. I, you know, I mean, forget um, Fisher in this. I'm thinking Miss Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> and the house is just absolutely stunning. It's great. The sets are incredible. The outfit, and I mean, the way they've done up sort of the contrast between Ruth and Elvira. And I think Leslie Mann was a really interesting choice for this. She's a largely a comedy actress, mm. but she does lead into the devilish spirit quite a bit. But they style those two in such a great way. The outfits are amazing and definitely one for costumers. I don't feel like she's as much a Lauren Bacall femme fatale in this one as a Madonna, a nasty Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or maybe Lady Gaga from um, American Horror. (laughs) It is a slightly different kind of femme fatale, isn't it, to kind of your old classic Hollywood. It's much more of a modern uh, saucy, spicy take on it, which which I kind of liked. Well, since she's dead, she's a femme fatale, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, um, here's the other big ticket. Actress Judy Dench mm. plays Madame Makati, the medium. And as I said, they've opened up the whole story, so we actually get to see her on stage performing, well, more or less on stage, performing her act. So <laughs> if you want to see Blythe Spirit, even more than the lean version, this one just takes you into places. Not always to good effect, I'm afraid. Yes, I agree. Which is kind of sad. A lot of talent on show here. <sighs> oh, well, where do we start? I don't think if you were going to take away Noel Coward's dialogue for chunks Mm. of a film, I really Mm. think you need to bring your A game Mm -hmm. to replace it. That is not always on show. The actors do their best. You can see it or perhaps see through it in cases. (laughs) And, of course, it is the 21st century. It's a lot easier to do the ghostly special effects now. But they actually do seem to hold themselves back a little with it too. Yeah, it's interesting. There were some scenes that you could really see the theatre roots in them, uh, and I'd be interested to see the play and actually get a sense of what the overlap is. But some scenes were definitely very a play, and some of the dialogue in the first half hour was so clever, and I have to think that obviously that's from the source material. There were just some lines that 
I was chuckling for moments afterwards. And then I do think it, it does lose a bit of steam. And I think it's because it, it opens up to try new ideas and do some different things, maybe a bit out of hand. I'm not sure exactly what the problem was for me, but it just didn't, it started not quite hitting quite right. Uh, bringing Arwen into the action at the Ford near Rivendell works, you know, but in the same series of films, having the elves at Helm's Deep <laughs> doesn't. You know, they're, they're, when you're doing that sort of thing, some things work and some things don't. And I think mm-hmm. that there are a lot of things in this film that don't work that they've constructed. Not from whole cloth, to be fair. I just think mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't fire up as well as they might do. Mm. I think they do a bit of a disservice to Coward's play in, in parts in this. Mm. And that may be because... If you've seen the other adaptations mm-hmm. or are familiar with the play on stage, you know, you're going to bring some luggage to this. Yes, of course. Yep, yep. I, I think if those other things didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's my perspective because I've not seen any of the other. I've just seen this fresh and I love that kind of a bit slapsticky, zingy comedy theatre. I do really enjoy those kinds of things like Noises Off comes to mind as something that does that really well. But I coming into this movie, there was a lot I enjoyed about it and I thought it looked fantastic and everybody was bringing a solid, mm. having a solid go. Yeah. But it, it just didn't quite fit together for me and I guess that's, yeah, me coming at it with fresh eyes and I wonder how much of that is the Frankensteining of the play with other narrative into a brand new thing and how much of it, yeah, just what was it that actually just started to slip? Mm. And I think there's a sort of a a kind of a fumbled attempt to bring it into relevance with current events in the world and particular movements and stuff. And normally I would applaud that, but when you fumble it, it's obvious, Mm. and I felt like Mm -hmm. they did that here. I'm not going to tell you what it was because it's, gives you some key plot elements. I, I, I think it's not plain sailing in this. It is astral plain sailing. I'm very <laughs> disappointed that they didn't let Judy Dench off the, the leash because yeah. having seen what Margaret Rutherford did with the role of the medium, I think that she could have really gone to town on mm, that. Mm. They changed the ending in this one considerably, mm-hmm. not just a little spot that they put in at the end of uh, the Rex Harrison one. And, there's a moment where they do actually do something from another movie, and again, I'm not going to tell you what it is, that did make me laugh. Okay. And I thought, yeah, all right, I'll pay that. That's kind of appropriate given the context of the thing that you've set up, and it's probably no point in me talking about it because <laughs> I can't <laughs> detail it. But there were some things to appreciate yeah. for sure. There's definitely some things that were very well executed. Mm. Costumes are great. Mm-hmm. Sets are great. The mm-hmm. needle drops of the tracks work mm-hmm. within the context mm-hmm. of the show. Does some disservice to Noel's brilliant dialogue. You know, if you, yep. you're going to do that, just do it better. Yeah. yeah. I, I I give it a, a maybe unless I'm Same. in a costuming mood and really want to see that sort of stuff. Uh, and, you know, the, the actors do This is one of those things. I think Chris Evans said it once. Sometimes you're acting your heart out during the movie yeah. and you can't tell. And mm. these actors are obviously bringing it all. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not hit. It's not missing the mark because people are dialing in for the day at their job. Yeah. People are giving it their all. Yeah. 
So that's the the new adaptation of Blythe Spirit, and that is now on Amazon Prime. Edward Hall is the director. Ah, such a shame. I felt that this, this could have been a one of those just wonderful little romps. On the other hand, I also will acknowledge that Coward's play is actually quite a tricky one to access. It seems to be this fantasy comedy, but there's some dark elements running through it. And he deliberately mm-hmm. made sure that you didn't like the characters too much Mm-mm-mm-mm. because of the context of World War Two. He said it would be too sad if you liked anyone really a lot in this play. And I get yeah. that, but that seems to have echoed on through the adaptations in this case. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Mm. All right, well, we'll go out with a track here. We played Always Before, which is key to mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. movie and the play. So we're going to go with Always Crashing in the Same Car which, again, is kind of relevant as David Bowie. And when are we going to hear a David Bowie track in Fear Street in one of the eras? There must be. He, There's got it. Well, 70s is the next one, so I want to say fingers crossed. One more thing about Blythe Spirit. I really would have, would have liked to have seen an adaptation back in the day with John Alderton and Pauline Collins in it, husband and wife acting team. Great. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Cary Grant playing Charles would have been perfect. Yeah. Oh, well. That's about it for Zero G. Astral Glamour coming up next with Joe Brunetti. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster, who's sort of ghostly in her presence on the show. <laughs> yes. But I assure you, she exists. She does. <laughs> G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.